0: Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But as it's written, I have not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men the things that God has prepared for those who love him. This morning, as we prepare to study the word of God, I think we all are very familiar with how we uh, begin our services with spiritual preparation. It's an opportunity for us for confession of sins. And also sometimes, as I always allow the students in the classes that I teach, sometimes it's just an opportunity for us to relax, um, to allow the, the motor to idle a little bit. And sometimes that's difficult to do. It's difficult to shift it into neutral. But sometimes we need to do that, just relax. And so you have just a few seconds this morning, either for confession of sins or to help you focus on what we will be studying regarding the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The other thing we do this morning at this time is allow you the opportunity to reciprocate in love to our Lord and to God through giving. And so as the ushers come forward this morning, I'll allow you the opportunity for preparation and also consideration for the offering. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, we are thankful that you have loved us in such a manner that you have given us your son, your only son, your unique son. And we're thankful, Father, that we have the ability to understand that love and in our spiritual growth to come to a position where we realize that your love is so great that we desire to respond to it. We're thankful for this opportunity to reciprocate in love by giving. And also, Father, subsequent to that, for the study of the Word of God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is Resurrection Sunday, and in the first hour, we looked at the week prior to our Lord's resurrection. We worked from Palm Sunday, through Good Friday to the morning of the resurrection. And the question might be, <clears throat> again, what's in a name? We've talked, we've contemplated Palm Sunday. Uh, that is traditionally the name. Good Friday, again, traditionally the name. We've looked at both of those. And it's interesting that with this Christian holiday season, really, We have three names that I think we could question and some of us do, but it's also fairly traditional of the church to accept these names, whether it be Palm Sunday, which I think much better triumphal entry or Messiah Day or something like that. Messiah Sunday. I think that's what I said. Uh, Good Friday. Well, let's. Just don't call it good. Let's call it Great Friday. I mean, if it's good, it's got to be tremendous for what occurred on that day. And now we come to Easter, Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday is no less controversial than the other names as well. We're probably unsure, uncertain. There are some who say that it springs from a pagan holiday, it occurred about this time, and that's probably true, and that um, the Christian holiday simply replaced it. There are those t- who believe that the name came from uh, an, old, uh, an old German word, but I, I could not find an old German to check that with over the weekend, at least none who knew of the word. There are others who believe that it possibly was simply an Anglo-Saxon holiday that became Easter. Well, we simply don't know. But we do know that it is probably the oldest and most celebrated of Christian holidays. Uh, The earliest we have of the word Easter is really in the first and second century. There was a... uh, uh, amongst the early Christians, not only the controversy of what we were calling the day, and there's not as much written about that, but as the controversy on what day it would be celebrated. And today we still have an orthodox Easter celebration and a traditional uh, Easter celebration. It's simply a matter of those who wanted to establish it on a specific day of the week, meaning Sunday, and others who wanted to try to attach it to the specific numerical day of the week uh, and celebrate it on that day. So we have both of those controversies, and that really was not, we were never able to quite settle that. So today we have both of, both holidays are celebrated. Anyhow, one of the traditions that has come up through, Um, through the church is that there are various ways to celebrate Resurrection Sunday or Easter. One of the ways, of course, is the sunrise service. Another was that the pastor in very many churches or in some churches would always say, he is risen, and then the congregation would respond, he is risen indeed. And that exchange was sort of a, a recognition that not only do we pronounce that he has risen, but the response is, yes, we believe. We truly believe that our Lord has risen. And there are other traditions that have uh, have arisen out of Easter. And I thought that I would talk about one of those this morning. And... Decided to wear, as I mentioned, the first service my what might be called my Easter tie or my Resurrection Sunday tie. But there are other things. There's Easter bonnets. There are uh, Easter uh, dresses. There are Easter sales. And I remember growing up. <clears throat> one of the things that I certainly enjoyed was the Easter eggs. And Easter eggs gave way to chocolate and Easter bunnies and things of that nature. And while I was looking. Through my notes, I came across an article that I thought you might enjoy, for those of you who do enjoy Easter eggs and Easter bunnies and things of that nature. And that is a study that was conducted on chocolate. This is a little light on the spiritual side right now. You have to understand. But it was a study relating relating to chocolate. And for those of you who like chocolate, <clears throat> this will be uh, support for you. It says chocolate may boost brain power and fight fatigue. So the next time your energy slumps, but you need to be sharp, it says a cup of hot chocolate might just boost the might provide you the boost that you need. I don't know if the hot chocolate will or not. Listen to this study. It says the boost might come from the flavanols. I remember growing, hearing someone talk about flavonoids, but this is flavanols, which are chemicals plentiful in dark chocolate. They fight fatigue and hone mental sharpness, according to scientists, at the Brain Performance and Nutrition Center of Northumbria University in Newcastle, UK. We might have had the opportunity to have Cassandra stop in there and on her way to see if this is true. <laughs> this is an extensive search and or, or extensive research. It says research gave, researchers gave 30 people a series of math tests before and after having either a flavonoid, lo, flavonoid loaded chocolate drink or a placebo beverage. Now, I don't know if the placebo beverage is caught on in England or not. You can go to a pub and say, give me one of those placebo beverages. You know, I don't know. But on a test that required repeatedly subtracting numbers, volunteers who got the flavanol-rich drink performed better than those drinking the dummy drink, as it was called. I think this is very interesting. You can probably see this: uh, 30 members having just eaten, drank some hot chocolate or eaten some chocolate because they also did that, going through these subtraction flashcards. That's the, what came to my mind. You know, three from six, three; two from six, four. You know, going through those flashcards as fast as you can, wearing them down. But anyhow, it says that those who had the chocolate-rich drink uh, did better than those who had the dummy drink. In addition. It said that the flavanols seemed to offset the fatigue from the intense mental concentration. So maybe they were doing more than just uh, multiplication flashcards or subtraction. So we asked them about their mental fatigue and it had increased, but when they had the cocoa, it seemed to offset that increase. The brain boosting effect is tied to the chocolate or the flavanols ability to dilate blood vessels allowing more blood to reach important areas of the brain. I don't know if there are unimportant areas of the brain, but it says here to reach important areas of the brain. Now, this is what I thought was the important part of this study. It says the study found that a 500 megagram dose of flavanols worked best. That's an equivalent of five chocolate bars. <laughs> So what they did is they worked with these 30 members for a while and then they had to transfer them to weight control (laughs) for a while before they could work with them again. So it says the researchers are trying to discover if there may be another way besides eating five chocolate bars to get the same effect. So uh, it appears that uh, one of the, wonderful benefits here celebrating uh, Resurrection Day is that you can just eat as many chocolate bars as you can just about handle. But anyhow, our passage to start our study this morning, the second service, is in Matthew 28.1. Matthew 28.1. Matthew 28.1. Matthew 28, 1. Matthew 28, 1, reading to verse 8 says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and and the other Mary came to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And so here we see that the stone again has been rolled back. And as I said last service, this was not so our Lord could depart, but it was so that we could see that he in fact had departed. The tomb was empty. Verse 3, his countenance was like lightning and his clo- clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like Dead men, In other words, they became as if they were stone as well. Verse 5, But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. And the cr- word for crucified here is reasonably well translated. But it happens to be in one of those tenses in, in Greek that we enjoy studying because it seems to have the significance carries more significance if we understand what the tense is, and this happens to be the perfect tense. And so we teach this, you know, very basics of Greek, is that a perfect tense uh, is the tense that carries past action, but with events that have results in the future, or we say future with future results. And so here we see... That the angel says, he, uh, you seek Jesus who was crucified. He was crucified in the past, a day ago. But the results of that crucifixion continue into the future. In other words, the payment of the sins, the results of the payment of the sins continue on. And it says, he is not here, for he is risen and he is risen is in the past. There's a past time. He's gone. Our Lord is gone from this tomb. <clears throat> he is not here. He is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you, our Lord will spend quite a bit of time with our disciples. He'll spend some of it in Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel. And he'll spend part of it down in Judah in the south. Verse eight. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear. In other words, they're, they don't completely understand what's happened here. But also great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And so we finished last hour with the joy, the goodness of Good Friday, the greatness of Great Friday. And here we see also the women as they depart saying, or being full of joy. As we begin our study this hour, what I wanted to do is several things. First of all, our Lord had foretold of his resurrection. He had prophesied of his resurrection. And so let's begin our study this morning with our Lord's resurrection and his predictions of that resurrection. This was not something that should have been a surprise, but unfortunately it was to many. In our first passage, <clears throat> let me see if I can get us down to where I want to be here. As we study our risen Savior, He is risen. Jesus is risen. First of all, Jesus said that He would rise from the dead. Our Lord foretold of this event. He predicted this event. And we are going to, some of the passages that we'll see will bring us back to some of the information that we saw in the first hour but first of all in Matthew 12:38 first of all in Matthew 12:38 we will see our lord predicting his resurrection Matthew 12 38 in Matthew twelve thirty-eight, we are at least in the context of a passage that we've studied before. And beginning in verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And in our New Testament Greek, this is not the Aramaic word for rabbi which was a term of respect. This is simply the word, tadaskelos. it's just simply teacher. And I think what we see here is a disrespect for who the Lord is. It's not as if they haven't seen a sign. As a matter of a fact, in this chapter, in Matthew 12, we've seen, again before, or we can go back just a little bit, in Matthew 12:22 says then one was brought to him who was demon possessed blind and mute and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw and all the multitudes were amazed here we are we're back to our amazement we're back to our astonishment what does this mean i don't know but it's good entertainment And that's what the Jews thought. That's how they viewed this. They're amazed. And they continued to be amazed. We saw this in Mark 1, and we saw it runs through the book of Mark. But here we see that they're amazed. And they said, could this be the son of David? Could it be? Could it be the Messiah? Verse 24. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Well, they have just seen a sign. They've just seen the power that he has as the Son of God and God the Holy Spirit working through him. But as soon as we get over here to verse 38, they come to him and say, well, we want to see a sign. We need to see another sign. We need to see a real sign. So our Lord says to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so our Lord has shown them sign after sign after sign, miracle after miracle after miracle. He has healed thousands of people in Israel. It's remarkable if you read through the Gospels. And take notice of those times when he's healing someone, whether they're blind or they can't walk or they have a disease. It says thousands. And we don't have a full accounting of that. Thousands of people were healed and they didn't believe. They were astonished. They were amazed. They were entertained. But only a few believed. The same for feeding 4,000 or 5,000 from just a few loaves of bread and fishes. They were amazed. The food was good, but they didn't believe in him. They questioned, could this, could this be the son of David? Could this be the son of God? Could this be the Messiah? Well, how many other people have you seen heal the blind? So our Lord says, and even an evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and no sign will be given to to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so the Lord has come to a time when he says, no, you have seen signs enough. The next sign you will see will be that of the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be there, be, <clears throat> be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I have a wonderful story uh, to tell about Jonah. It comes from last week. Uh, I was speaking with Anna and Jennifer right down here in front. And she had... A piece of art, and the piece of art had a lion on it, Collared in. And actually, Jennifer was carrying it, so I took the. Uh, I asked for the piece of art, and I was talking to Anna. And I said, "Anna, what is this? Oh, it's a lion. We're studying Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel with the lions." And I said, "Well, Anna, did Daniel end up in the lion?" And she said, no, we're not talking about Jonah and the fish. (laughs) And so I said, oh, that must be another story. And she said, yes, that's another story. So Daniel didn't end up in the fish. She knows her Bible stories. I didn't ask about Jonah, but here it is. And it reminded me of that. And I certainly enjoyed talking to Anna about Jonah and lions and Daniel and fish. And anyhow, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. In other words, the generation of Nineveh saw much less than what you've seen. You saw a prophet. Excuse me. Nineveh. The men of Nineveh saw a prophet and heard the truth and believed. You have seen the Son of God, and you do not believe. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Solomon's wisdom cannot compare to our Lord Jesus Christ, to the Son of God. And she will condemn this generation because she believed and she did not see the Son of God. She simply heard the truth. And blessed are those who hear the truth and believe and those who continue to question it. And so we see in Matthew 12, 19, he says... There is a type here, the type in the Old Testament was Jonah, and being in the belly of the big fish, the great fish for three nights and now I am what we call in theology the antitype here. I am uh, the event the individual to whom this looked forward. Our second passage is matthew sixteen twenty one matthew sixteen twenty one matthew sixteen twenty one Another passage that we've studied. In Matthew 12, 38, previously, we saw that the demand for a sign is not evidence, or excuse me, is evidence of unbelief rather than faith. And now, here in Matthew 16, 21, we see that immediately after the disciples tell Jesus that the people of Israel have completely misidentified him. And that's what we see up in verse 13. We need to go to verse 13. Then Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. We studied Caesarea Philippi. This is where the, the great stone face, rock face of uh, Caesarea Philippi is located and where many temples were built to pagan gods. And he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I, that I the Son of Man, am? And the word Son of Man here, is a phrase matter of fact it's the most popular name that our Lord Jesus Christ used for himself he uses this for himself for several reasons but one of them is because that name is found in Daniel the name is found over in Daniel oh Daniel's um, son of man daniels hmm, I've lost my thought here daniels six i think no it's daniel back is 4 maybe daniel 7 daniel 7:13 7, daniel says i was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and so daniel uses this phrase in daniel 7:13 and our lord continues to use it and those who understood their Old Testament, and most of the, uh, certainly the Jewish religious leaders did, understood what he was saying, the Son of Man. But when he uses the Son of Man in this way, he is identifying himself as the Son of Man, who, the phrase used in the Old Testament, but it's a Hebrew phrase that means that I have characteristics of. Son of meant characteristics of. We would often see son of Belial. We'd see son of perdition. It doesn't mean that they're physically the son of someone, something that was worthless or son of perdition, something that was the, uh, someone who was the son of destruction. But they had the characteristics of that individual. And so we see that he's called the son of man. But what happens here is that Israel completely misidentifies him because it says in verse 14, So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or possibly one of the prophets. He has been telling them who he is. He's been telling them that he is, in fact, the son of man. He is the son of God who has the characteristics of man, He is not exactly the same because he doesn't have the sin nature, but he is the son of man. And Israel has completely misidentified him. Only Peter here, or possibly the other disciples, but Peter speaking for them, correctly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one. And so that's what we see in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. That's the word for the Messiah in Greek, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And then in verse 20, our Lord says, then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ in verse 21. And from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So our Lord began to teach this to the disciples. But again the disciples misunderstood. They don't understand. They understand the death part of it because in verse 22 then Peter took Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying far be it from you lord this shall not happen to you you shall not die see the lord is the teacher the lord is the rabbi the lord is teaching them what would happen but peter saying no no we can't have that we can't have uh, any more of this talk about you dying and so we see here that the lord is going to die and He's telling his disciples now, there's going to be a change. Yes, I am the anointed one. Yes, I am the Messiah. But I'm going to the cross. Yes, I am the king. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom still could have come. But our Lord says from now on, we're working our way towards the cross. Our focus is now on the cross. He's going there to pay for the sins of the world. In Matthew 17, 9, our next passage is Matthew 17, 9. In Matthew 17, 9, while Jesus and the three disciples are coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Our Lord has been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there they saw the Lord in his glorified body, his resurrection body. And Jesus tells them not to tell anyone about this. Don't tell anyone about the resurrection body. Why? Because we have given Israel the opportunity. We have given the Jews the opportunity to accept me as the Messiah, and they have not. And so now we are going to the cross. He must go to the cross to provide salvation first, and then they again would see him in his glorified body. So in verse 17, chapter 17, verse 9, we see. um, Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? This is an interesting remark. The Lord says, don't tell anybody about my glorified body until I have been resurrected from the dead. Okay, Lord, by the way, I got a question about Elijah. You might think that there would be a question about that, being risen from the dead, but they do not have a question. Matthew 17, 23 Same chapter, Matthew 17, 23. This is the Lord telling first of all Israel and the world, and then also the disciples, <clears throat> that he is going to be that he will die and that he will be that he will be resurrected. Matthew seventeen twenty-three. Matthew seventeen twenty-three says, I'm going to start verse twenty-two. Now, when they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man, and again, this is his favorite title for himself. This is, yes, I am the son of God, but I'm also perfect humanity. I am qualified to go to the cross. I am the son of man. I have the characteristics of man. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day, he will be raised up. And here it says they were exceedingly sorrowful. So there are times when they understand what he's saying about his death and there's other times when they do not. But again, in Matthew 17:23, the disciples do not understand the idea of death and resurrection here. They're hearing death and understanding it possibly as just a normal person would understand it. However, Jesus is not a normal person. Jesus is not a normal person. And he's been telling them that fact since the beginning of his ministry. He's telling them about his purpose for coming to earth. Matthew 26:32 is our next passage and final passage here. Matthew 26, 32. Matthew 26, 32. In Matthew 26, 22, the Lord is talking to the disciples. He celebrated the Passover with his disciples, and he has uh, instituted the Lord's Supper. And he's talking to them about what would happen later that night. And in verse 31, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great shepherd, is quoting this passage saying that, yes. Zechariah 31 or 13:7 says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. When Christ is taken, there is fear struck in the hearts of the disciples. Verse 32, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And of course, Peter denies this, that that can happen. We won't deny you. But what our Lord is saying is even though you will fear the events that are occurring, and even though you will be faithless, I will be faithful. Because I understand and I will go before you into Galilee. What we're going to see is the contrast between the disciples here and the disciples after the resurrection. Because it's after the resurrection that they understand and they have courage. So the Lord said that he would be raised from the dead. Now, our Lord in order to, again, attest to the fact that he was resurrected from the dead, appeared many, many times to many people. And so our next the next part of this study, and we'll probably move through this a little quicker, is the resurrection appearances of our Lord. The resurrection appearances of our Lord are many. And the Bible attests to this. And what is absolutely remarkable is that the Bible says time after time after time that many people saw the risen Savior. And there is no better, there is no more uh, authenticated book than the Word of God. The Bible has been printed far and away more times than any other book in the world. And some books that have dubious facts are believed Whereas the Bible that is authenticated by God the Holy Spirit and been proven time and time again to be accurate is doubted. But here we see the witnesses for our Lord's appearance. And we're not going to have time to go to the actual passages, but he first appears, and we've read this both in John and in Matthew. He appears first to Mary Magdalene and Mark nineteen nine. I've given you Mark nineteen nine because we read Matthew uh, the passages in Matthew and also twenty-one and uh, John nineteen. Twenty, John twenty. Secondly, to the other women. We did see that in Matthew twenty eight nine. So he appears to the other women. They saw him. He appears to Peter. And we see that in Luke 24, 23. He appears to Peter in Luke 24, 23. Um, I'm just going to check that passage because I have a difference in my notes here. Luke twenty four, okay. That should be uh, thirty four. It's not twenty three. It's thirty four. Uh, we also have fourth to two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke twenty four thirteen. Luke twenty four thirteen. So he appealed, appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and what's interesting about that meeting is that he is able to uh, to dis- to prevent them from realizing who he is, and he talks to them. About all of the things that they should have known about the word of God, and he talks to them all the way from Moses down to the present time, telling them wondrous things that they were, uh, that they that they then repeated to others. So, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke twenty-four thirteen. Then he appeared to the ten disciples in Luke twenty-four thirty-six. To the ten disciples in Luke twenty-four thirty-six. 6. He appeared then to the eleven disciples in Mark 16 14. In Luke 24, 36, we see that he appeared without Thomas being present. And then Thomas was present when he appeared to the eleven in Mark 16 14. He appeared to seven disciples by the sea in John 21, 1 and following. And of course, this is the time when he appears on the shore and he calls to them and he's preparing food for them he's cooking fish for them he's continuing to serve them and minister to them it's a wonderful picture of our lord and our our god he appeared to 500 people as paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:6 so he appears to a large number of people 500 in 1 Corinthians 15:6 That would be the eighth appearance. The ninth appearance was to James and the apostles, as Paul reports this in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. To James and the apostles. And this James that we're seeing here in our ninth appearance was to members of his family. This this was not the disciple and later... Apostle James but this is his half-brother James who didn't believe until after the resurrection apparently there was just something there about believing in your brother being God that didn't work 10 to the 11 disciples on a mountain in Galilee where he gave them what's now known as the great commission he appears to the 11 disciples on a mountain in Galilee. 11, he appears, looks like that's out of line, at the ascension. At the ascension on the Mount of Olives in Luke 24:44. So at the ascension, as he's ascending into heaven, an angel says, Why do you stand looking up into the heavens? Because as he departs, he will return. He will return as you see him leaving, departing. We also see, and now I'm going to talk about post-resurrection appearances that are after he left the earth. We might call these post-ascension appearances. And there are probably more than this. But at least the ones that we have recorded, first of all, to Stephen in Acts seven fifty five, Stephen was able to see him in heaven. Thirteen our thirteenth appearance was to Paul on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, 3. And so he appears to Paul. One of these, of course, this one, 13 to Paul was making him an apostle. Because our Lord Jesus Christ chose his apostles and appeared to them. They had seen the resurrected Lord. And that was one of the qualifications and is one of the qualifications of an apostle. So those who say they're an apostle today, unless they've seen an appearance of the risen Savior, of course, they may say they have, but they haven't. Fourteen appeared to Saul and to Paul in prison in Acts 23:11. Our Lord appears to Paul in prison. These last few are to Paul. To Paul, well, at least these two. To Paul on the Damascus Road, Acts 9, 3, Acts 9, 3 and to Paul in prison in Acts 23:11, And then finally, to John on the, isle, the island of Patmos. The Isle of Patmos in Revelation one two one twelve, in Revelation one twelve, the Lord Jesus Christ appears to John. John sees the post resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so, what is significant about all these is that these are critical to our Christian faith. The fact that He is risen is critical to our Christian faith, and He has risen. His resurrection is well described and well confirmed. It's attested to by many. And the word of God certainly supplies that reassurance for us. There is no more well attested book than the word of God. The fact of the resurrection. Just a few points as we close here. The fact of the resurrection. First of all, the empty tomb. That's by far, in a way, the most significant fact that we have. The fact of the resurrection is the empty tomb. He is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Secondly, the competency of the witnesses. Those who saw him, most of them knew him. They were not deceived it was not someone else he was the jesus that they had seen they had they knew that he had died they knew that he was buried and they knew that he was resurrected so they were not deceived furthermore The change in the disciples after the resurrection. The fact of the resurrection. After the cross, the disciples were despondent and frightened. After the resurrection, they were joyous and fearless. And many of them gave their lives telling of the resurrection. Defending the faith. Because they no longer were doubtful. They no longer were fearful. So the fact of the resurrection, there's others. But these three provide us certainly with confirmation. And then I wanted to look at three things of the significance of the resurrection. The significance of the resurrection. First of all, it's evidence that he was the Son of God. Paul tells us in Romans 1-4 that this is evidence that he was the Son of God. Romans 1, four. Romans 1.4 <clears throat> Our Lord's resurrection provided evidence that he was the Son of God. Romans 1.4 says, and I better start reading in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures verse 3 concerning his son Jesus, his son Jesus Christ our lord who was born of the seed of david according to the flesh and declared declared to be the son of god with power according to the spirit of holiness how by the rec- by the resurrection from the dead so it's his resurrection that provides us evidence that he is the son of God. Secondly, the significance of the resurrection is seen in the fact that our Lord's resurrection is a guarantee of ultimate sanctification. It is a guarantee of ultimate sanctification. Again, the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:20. 1 Corinthians 15:20. It's a guarantee of ultimate sanctification. We talk of 3 stages of sanctification. Phase 1 is at salvation. We also call it justification. Phase 2 is either experiential sanctification or progressive sanctification, living our spiritual lives. And phase three, ultimate sanctification, is at the rapture for us when we receive our resurrection body. And we see in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Not permanently, but they have fallen asleep. Verse 21, for since by man... Came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And then verse 23, but each one in his own order Christ the first fruit, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. And so the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ has been resurrected means we will also be resurrected. That's a wonderful, wonderful guarantee. And it is this that we comfort ourselves at the death of loved ones. If they're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be resurrected and we will see them again. And then finally, it assures a mediator for us at the right hand of God the Father. It assures a mediator for us At the right hand of God the Father. His resurrection assures for us a mediator. A mediator interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father. There are many passages that we could go to that talk about his priesthood, but Hebrews 4.16 says, Hebrews 4:16 I'll start in verse 15 for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4:15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted, he was tested as we are, yet without sin. 16 Verse 16 Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need so we are to come to the throne of grace why because in sam in the hebrews 7 hebrews 7:25 7, we see the fact that we have an intercessor a mediator verse 25 of chapter 7 in hebrews therefore he is also able to deliver to the utmost uttermost Those who come to God, who draw near the throne, who come to the throne room through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And where is this specifically? Hebrews 8, 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And he is our intercessor. And so, yes, we celebrate Resurrection Day. What? For many reasons. Here are simply three, significance of those three. But we have a mediator. We have the one who paid for our sins, gave his life for us, resurrected, seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for us to come in our prayers to approach him so that he can intercede for us. He has risen indeed. He has risen indeed. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Germany Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have at your right hand our Savior, our intercessor, our mediator, someone who not only intercedes for us, but brings us into the throne room to you. We're thankful that we have the Son of God, the Messiah, but also Father, our Savior, seated right there. Indeed, he is risen. We're thankful, Father, for the empty tomb. And this morning, as we remember his resurrection, help us to remember the significance of his work on the cross and his resurrection. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.